Blog Talk Radio. This 25, 22 million views this, this thing has. 
Those demonstrations at the inauguration were, uh, they arrested people were, were... Nearly six months <coughs> after Donald Trump was sworn into office, more than 200 protesters who gathered in Washington, D.C. to protest his inauguration are facing felony charges that carry sentences of 70 to 80 years. Yeah, According that. to Al Jazeera, the 212 protesters were arrested by the Metropolitan Police Department and, and initially charged with felony rioting, a crime that carries a 10-year prison sentence and a $25,000 fine. On April 27th, the Superior Court of the District of Columbia added charges that include urging to riot, conspiracy to riot, and destruction of property. The possibility of long-term prison sentences for those protesters could have a chilling effect on participation in future rallies, particularly at a time of heightened levels of anti-Trump activism. While it's unclear whether police departments will respond to large-scale political protests in a similar fashion, a dangerous precedent has been set. These legal actions may also infringe on the demonstrators' First Amendment rights as they directly targeted anti-Trump protest movements. <coughs> Olivia, pardon me, Olivia Alsop, yeah. a 23-year-old from Chicago, told Al Jazeera she never envisioned participating in the anti-Trump protest on inauguration gay could leave her facing an 80-year prison sentence. It seems that innocent until proved guilty is a falsehood. That's true, lady. Now you know how poor people feel. Mm. All the way from per prosecution and police to the people who had previously supported me in my activism. Alsip and the other defendants face the additional strain of having to pay for travel expenses to and from Washington for each of their court hearings before they go to trial. Most of us don't have a whole lot of money, she said. Generally, we are fighting the rich because we are economically or politically disadvantaged and don't have a lot of capital. As political protests and civil disobedience reached their highest level since the 60s, 18 states have responded by proposing over 30 bills aimed at suppressing demonstrations. <coughs> by increasing and expanding penalties for protesters. A new law in Missouri, let me take a break there for a second. <coughs> a new law in Missouri prohibits protesters from covering their faces <coughs> with masks or other disguises. Florida, Tennessee, uh, Georgia, and Iowa have introduced bills that call for increased penalties for tra blocking traffic and demonstrating on private property. The American Civil Liberties Union has called these new laws unconstitutional and vowing to fight in state houses against any bill that violates the First Amendment. While several defendants have pleaded guilty to shorten their sentences, about 130 of the defendants have joined a points of unity agreement pledging to reject any potential plea deal and cooperation with prosecutors. And on May 26, uh, 21 uh, defendants filed motions to have their cases dismissed. Following the January 20 uh, arrests, uh, lawyers uh, for some of the arrested protesters filed a class action suit against the uh, MPD alleging the law enforcement engaged in excessive use of force and uh, conducted false arrests. The Office of Police Complaints a D.C. government agency has called for the independent investigation evaluating the actions of the MPD, Metropolitan Police Department. Yeah. 
officers that day. Yeah, but this all started a while back. This isn't the first under this president. No, but this this is the one. No, 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 no. But this this thing now. Uh, it's just it, it's yeah, just yeah, up and on. Sure, How about the fact that you can't even protest at conventions? They throw you in some place miles away. You can't even demonstrate. You can't stand on the steps of the Supreme Court. You can't get near anybody to say anything to them. So this is, as I said to you earlier on, there was going to be a problem, yeah. and there was going to be an escalation of the termination of people's rights. Oh, and you're right. Sure, you're right on. Um, I know more censorship, you know, more censorship. And uh, again, Republicans are seriously uh, want to censor. I got some other stuff going on. <coughs> but th this was interesting because, um, you know, uh, today, which was uh, actually June 1st, actually, uh, um, uh, Yemen uh, faces total collapse with over 7 million people at the brink of famine, disease, deprivation, and death. Saudi airstrikes continued to bombard the country, and we just sold them a hundred and another hundred billion dollars or something. What's uh, in Yemen that everybody wants? Well, to understand what is happening now, it's important to see how it, it's all started. And the world continues to turn a blind eye to their suffering, but we won't. And post your comments and whatever. But this is that's where all those uh, pirates were located. Uh, no, no. Um, hang on one second. Yemeni pirates? Yeah, this is about five minutes, but you know. It, it's kind of worth um, listening to it. ...street to the outside world, as it does inside the Arab... ...with conflict, famine, and political unrest. In the 1900s, Yemen saw multiple conflicts spanning the centuries, the British starting in the beginning. The conflict of the 1920s and the 1930s, which saw Najran, Jassan, and Asir invaded and occupied by the fledgling Saudi nation. To the free Yemeni movement, the sacred national charter, and the failed Al-Wazir coup of 1949. <coughs> a coup attempt by the military against Imam Muhammad al-Badir in 1962 eventually led to a full-scale civil war and became a proxy battleground between various Arab countries and their European allies. The idea of Yemen as a proxy battleground at the time would end up foreshadowing current events in the country. For many in the West, the first time they heard of Yemen was when the USS Cole was attacked in Aden Harbor and many Americans were killed. For many, this entrenched the idea of Yemen and the association with extremist groups such as Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, also known as AQAP, which was a conglomeration of the Saudi and Yemeni branches of Al-Qaeda. In 1992, a group called themselves the Believing Youth were established and their followers would end up being the nucleus of the group popularly known as Houthis, whose official name is Asar Ullah, the impetus behind the Believing Youth and a wider movement referred to as Zaidi Revivalist Movement, whose foundations was a reaction to foreign intervention and shoring up Zaidism against the perceived threat of Saudi-influenced Wahhabi ideologies. Combining this religious motivation along with grievances about the marginalization of northern Yemen led to six different wars between the Houthis and the government in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. The conflict sometimes directly involved Saudi troops and the Saudis supported the president of Yemen, Ali Abdul Saleh, heavily in his conflict with the Houthis. 
In the wake of the Arab Spring protests, a similar movement erupted in Yemen that led to the same leader of over three decades, Ali Abdul Saleh, being disposed due to popular protests in favor for Saudi and US-backed Abd Rabba Mansour Hadi. The Houthis that did not participate in the one-person electoral vote for Hadi in 2012, which gave Yemenis the option to vote for Hadi only under the pretense of democracy. There were no other candidates, nor the ability to write one in. A national dialogue council was set up to bring the various factions together to find solutions to Yemen's issue, but it was dismissed and boycotted by some of the most marginalized parts of Yemeni society that include the southern secessionists known as Al-Iraq and of course the Houthis. The simmering conflict in the north of Yemen spilled over into other governorates and into Sana'a. The government yeah, itself, a, a cut in by the government caused weeks of riots which brought the Houthis into direct conflict in the capital with the Yemeni army under General Ali Mohsen al-Akmir. Al-Akmir was connected to the al-Isla movement, Yemen's version of the Muslim Brotherhood. In a short battle with the troops of al-Akmir, his fighters were rooted and the Houthis took Sana'a. Weeks of such political machinations took place and ended up with Abd Rabba Mansur Hadi being confined to the presidential palace. In February of 2015, Hadi escaped the presidential compound and fled to Aden, defiantly announcing that he remained the president of Yemen. Yeah, right. Despite the fact that his term as president had elapsed and he had already resigned more than once. The former president of Yemen, Saleh, condemned these statements and demanded that Hadi step down. In a surprising twist to the already complex situation, the former president Saleh, who had fought multiple conflicts with the Houthis and forces loyal to him, joined in a military cooperation with the Houthis. At this point, fighting was raging on multiple different fronts, including Aden, Taez, Lahej, Dala, Abiyan, and Shabwa. On March 25, 2015, a coalition of countries, led by Saudi Arabia, started an air campaign against the Houthis, Saleh, and their allies. From the beginning, the Saudis used American intelligence and logistics to carry out the massive air campaign. The aerial attacks have been implicated in the mass murder of civilians and other war crimes. Over a dozen civilians were killed when Saudi planes destroyed seven houses in Sana'a. On March 30th, more than 40 civilians were killed after coalition planes attacked al-Muzarat refugee camp. The Saudi coalition has set up a blockade around Yemen with the stated goal of depriving the Houthis and their allies of weapons, but the reality is much more different. The impact is to literally starve the people of Yemen and deprive them of life-saving medicine. Multiple markets and hospitals have been targeted and bombed by the coalition, who at one point declared an entire governorate a war zone and recommended that civilians leave the area, an action in contravention of international laws. Doctors Without Borders was forced to evacuate its teams from entire areas of Yemen due to Saudi coalition attacks on its hospitals. With millions facing famine and one Yemeni child dying every 10 minutes, it is said to be the worst and most forgotten humanitarian crisis of our time. Medical supplies are lacking whilst the Saudi-backed coalition accuses Iran of backing the rebels. The claim that Iran has played a significant role in the conflict in Yemen has been refuted by many experts on Yemen. The conflict has become a sticky situation for the Saudis, both militarily and financially. Houthis have launched numerous attacks on Saudi itself via ballistic missiles. The war has been called a forgotten war, but this is a misnomer. 
It is a war that has largely been covered up by the Western governments like the US and UK who are complicit in the war crimes and have spent billions in arms sales to the Saudis and That's other coalition crazy. members. Since taking office, American President Donald Trump has dramatically increased the amount of jet fires and drone raids on Yemen. This coming on the back of a raid on ACAP fighters that resulted in one Navy SEAL dead along with dozens of civilians including women and children. The war on Yemen shows no signs of ending, with American forces upping the stakes and billions of dollars being made by European and American arms manufacturers. Profits made upon the bodies of Yemeni men, women and children ripped apart by their bombs. There you go, folks. That's what the deal is in Yemeni. Wow. You wonder what was going on in Yemen? Well, now you know. Pretty sick. Um, let me see. Oh, the, uh, this is kind of interesting. That's disgraceful, that war, though. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, I mean, they're, they're just trying to exterminate those people. What's in that country that they want? I don't know. Access to the Gulf, to the water? That, no, it's just that they're fighting each other to death. It's for power and so it's, uh, it's crazy. Um, and it's, it's a way for us to, to, to make, you know, to, it's, it's all fueled by the arms, you know, uh, race, you know, the arms yeah. people. I think uh, maybe you're right. Oh, sure it is, yeah. Study by MIT economists, U.S. has regressed to a third world nation for most of its citizens. That's yeah, this true. is a frightening, uh, a frightening article, actually. Um, well, that's what they've wanted. America divided. The concept increasingly graces political discourse in the U.S., pitting left against right, conservative thought against liberal agenda. But for decades, Americans have been rearranging along another divide. Okay, go down. Okay. Uh, Americans have been rearranging along another divide. Uh, the concept start. that increasingly graces political discourse, partly left against right, conservative thought against liberal agenda. Uh, oh, okay. But for decades, um, Americans have been rearranging along another divide. One just as stark, if not far more significant, a chasm once bridged by flourishing middle class. Peter Timmon, Professor Emeritus of Economics at MIT, believes the ongoing death of the middle America has sparked the emergence of two countries within one, the hallmark of developing nations in his new book, The Vanishing Middle Class, Prejudice and Power in a Dual Economy. Oh, I'd be very interested in reading that. Tim, uh, Timmon paints a bleak picture where uh, one country has a bounty of resources and power and another toils day after day with minimal access to long-coveted American dream. In his view, the, American, the United States is shifting toward an economic and political makeup more similar to developing nations than the wealthy, economically stable nations it has long been. And Tevin applied W. Arthur Lewis's economic model designed to understand the workings of developing countries to the United States in an effort to document how inequality has grown in America. The parallels are unsettling, as noted by the Institute for New Economic Thinking. In Lewis's model of a dual economy, much of the low-wage sector has little influence over public policy. Check. 
The high income sector will keep wages down in the other sector to provide cheap labor for its businesses. Jack. Social control is used to keep the low wage sector from challenging the policies favored by high income sector mass incarceration. Check. The primary goal of the richest members of the high income sector is to lower taxes. Check. Social and economic mobility is low. Check. Uh, Timon describes multiple contributing factors in the nation's arrival at this place, from exchanging the war on poverty for the war on drugs to money into politics and systemic racism. It outlines the ways in which racial prejudice continues to lurk below the surface, allowing politicians to appeal to the age-old desire to preserve the inferior status of blacks, encouraging white low-wage workers to accept their lesser place in society. We have a structure that is winners and losers. We are not getting, we are not getting uh, the benefits of all the people who contribute to the growth of the economy to advance in medicine or science, which could improve the quality of life for everyone, including some of the rich people, he laments. The antidote, as, uh, as prescribed by Timmon, is, um, is likely a cost top sell in today's political climate. Expanding education, updating infrastructure, forgiving mortgage and student loan debt, and overall working to boost social mobility for Americans are bound to be seen as too liberal by many policymakers. And until this course is changed, more in the middle class will continue to fade and America will remain un unsustainably divided. Well, you know, this mm. What? It's become, you know, it's not a war. It's a no, war it, against poor people. It's a war against poor people, sure. You know, and uh, and that's what the Democrats did, and the Republicans have followed suit. That's that's absolutely right. And they continued. That's they're both that way. Now this is so sick. Donald Trump shifted kids' cancer charity money into his business. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Eric. Uh, Eric the Eric the Great there. The uh, younger son? Yeah, kind of a moron. He uh confessed Continue to article. Yeah, he can, he confessed that uh, they did that. I don't know why he said it. I don't know why exactly but uh June twenty ninth, two thousand what? This story appears in the June twenty ninth. Two thousand seven. So issue it's not, it, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it hasn't officially appeared. Like autumn leaves, sponsored Cadillacs, Ferraris, and Maseratis descend on the Trump National Golf Club <coughs> in Westchester County, New York, in September for the Eric Trump Foundation Golf Invitational. Year after year, the formula is consistent. Eighteen holes of perfectly trimmed fairways with a dose of Trumpian tackiness, including hooters, waitresses, and cigar um, and cigar spreads, followed by a clubhouse dinner, dates encouraged. The crowd leans toward real estate insiders, family friends, and C-list celebrities, such as former baseball slugger Daryl Strawberry and reality housewife and bankruptcy fraud felon Teresa Goodies. Goodies, yeah, C-list. Yeah. Yeah, the real star of the day is Eric Trump, the president's second son, and now the co-head of the Trump Organization, who has hosted this event for 10 years on behalf of the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. 
He's done a ton of good. To date, he's directed more than $11 million there, the vast majority of it via the annual Golf Hall event. He has also helped raise another $5 million through events with other organizations. The best part about all this, according to Eric Trump, <coughs> is the charity's efficiency. Because he can get his family's golf course for free, and have most of the other costs donated. Virtually all the money contributed will go to helping kids with cancer. We get to use our assets 100% free of charge, Trump tells Forbes. And that's not the case. In reviewing filings from the Eric Trump Foundation and other charities, it's clear that the course wasn't free, that the Trump Organization received payments for its use. Part of the more than 1.2 million that is no documented recipients passed the Trump Organization. Golf charity experts say the listed expenses defy any reasonable cost justification for a one-day golf tournament. <laughs> Additionally, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, which has come under previous scrutiny for self-dealing and advancing the interest of its namesake, uh, rather than those of charity, apparently used the Eric Trump Foundation to funnel $100,000 in donations into revenue for the Trump Organization. And while donors to the Eric Trump Foundation were told their money was going to help sick kids, um, more than $500,000 was redonated re to other charities, many of which were connected to Trump family members or interests including at least four groups that subsequently paid to hold golf tournaments at Trump courses. Jesus, what a, what a, what a cheat. Piece of work, huh? All of these seem to defy the federal tax rules and state laws that ban self-dealing and misleading donors. <laughs> it also raises larger questions about the Trump family dynamic and uh, whether Eric and his brother, Don Jr., can be truly independent of their father. Especially since the people who the person. Oh, sorry, the person who specifically commanded that the for-profit non-Trump uh, organization, yeah, that the for-profit Trump organization start billing hundreds of thousands of dollars to the non-profit Eric Trump Foundation, according to two people directly involved, was none other than the current president of the United States, Donald Trump. So. So he swindles charity. Yeah, at St. Jude Hospital. And what a friggin' crook. And in order to understand the Eric Trump Foundation, you need to understand Donald Trump Foundation. The president was never known for giving his foundation much money. And from 2009 to 2014, he didn't give it anything at all. And outsiders still donated through allowing Trump to dole out their money to a smattering of more than 200 charities as if they were his, and many of the donations helping his business interests. And Eric Trump set out to do things differently. Coming out of Georgetown, he decided he would try to translate the good fortune he had and inherited into support for children's cancer research. Why this cause, especially for a guy who doesn't uh, have any kids? It's a great question. It's one that I've been asked before, and I'm not really sure, he says. I think there is something about that innocence that has always affected me. And after visiting various hospitals, he chose to give to St. Uh, Jude, uh, the world's best-known uh, pediatric center. And uh, 
Eric Trump's Ooh, Eric Trump's set up his foundation as a public charity, a clarification, a classification that allows it to raise most of its money from outside donors. In 2007, when he was 23, the first Eric Trump golf tournament took place, raising 220000 A compelling sales pitch involved the free golf course and the donated goods and services, assured donors that every penny possible went to charity. The Eric Trump Foundation employed no staff until 2015, and its annual expense ratio averaged 13%, about half of what most charities pay in overhead. His original seven-person board was made up of personal friends and an Oculus lot who helped sell tournament tickets, which last year ranged from 3000 for a single all-day ticket to 100000 for a pair of VI foursomes. Oh, my God. For the first four years of the golf tournament from 2007 to 2010, the total expenses averaged about 50000 according to tax filings, not quite the zero-cost advantage that a donor might expect given uh, who owned the club, but at least in line with other charities paid to host, host outings at Trump courses, according to the review of tax filings for other charitable organizations. But in 2011, things took a turn. Costs for Eric Trump's tournament jumped <coughs> from 46000 to 142000 according to the foundation's IRS filings. Why would the price of the tournament suddenly triple in one year? In the early years, they weren't being billed for the club. The bills would just disappear, said Ian Galou, who served as membership and marketing director at the Trump National Westchester during two stints from 2006 to 2015, witnessed how Donald Trump reacted to the tournament's act and economics. Mr. Trump had a cow. He flipped. He was like, we're donating all, it, donating all this stuff. There's no paper trail, no credit, and he went nuts. He said, I don't care if it's my son, son or not. Everybody gets billed. Well, Katrina Kopp, who served on the board of directors of the Eric Trump Foundation in 2010 and 2011, um, also remembered Donald Trump insisting the charity start paying its own way, despite Eric's public claim to the contrary. He did have to cover the expenses, he says. The charity had grown so much that the Trump Organization couldn't absorb all of those costs anymore, and Trump Organization declined to answer detailed questions about the payments. But it seemed that for the future president, who Forbes estimated is worth $3.5 billion, a freebie uh, to help his son directly fight kids' cancers uh, took a backseat to revenue. And he says, I saw, the Eric, I saw that Eric was getting billed. Gooey. As I would always say, I can't believe that his dad is billing him for a charitable outing, but that's what they wanted. It's also very consistent. Uh, the Donald J. Trump Foundation famously acted like an arm of the overall business, um, using the charity money to settle a Trump business lawsuit, uh, make a political donation, even purchase expensive portraits of his namesake. <laughs> and meanwhile, Trump's businesses uh, build a Trump campaign fueled by small outside donors, uh, more than the 11 million uh, to hold his properties, chefs, and private aircraft. To use his properties. Yeah, I'm sorry, to use them. 
At first, the extra bills did not cost the Eric Trump Foundation anything. Shortly before the spike in cost, Donald J. Trump Foundation donated 100000 to the Eric Trump Foundation, a gift explicitly made, according to Gillou, to offset the increased judget. Then the Eric Trump donors were still seeing their money go to work for kids along with the same line as previous years. The Eric Trump Foundation declined to comment on that donation. In effect, though, this maneuver would appear to have more in common with a drug cartel's money laundering operation than a charity's best practice textbook. The 100000 in outside donations to the Donald J. Trump Foundation, member Trump himself didn't give to his own foundation at this time, passed through the Eric Trump Foundation, <coughs> wound up in the coffers of the Donald Trump's private businesses. His father, Mr. Trump, always, until the beginning of the presidency, had a very, very tight rein on what was going on, said Gilu, and um, referring to the company's golf courses. The buck always stopped with him, and the cost for Eric's golf tournament quickly escalated after returning in 2012 to a more modest 59000 while the <coughs> event brought in a record $2 million and listed uh, costs exploded to 230000 and 242000 and finally 322000 And the son of a bitch was, you know, he, he was stealing all this, all these, uh, all this money. They're just taking it from the from the donations and billing it to to his to to, to his uh, golf courses and stuff, you know, for for the for the tournament. And it's just it, this article is is really lengthy and it goes on, but I'm but uh, I'm going to refer you to it. Uh, to You'd be arrested it. by the tax man. Yeah, this is Forbes. Okay, uh, Trump's America, and it was written on June 6, 2017. It just came out, so uh, go to Forbes.com uh, and uh, check it out. How Donald Trump shifted kids' cancer charity money into his business. What a nice scumbag. Yeah, scumbag. Trump is a scumbag. Guess so. Well, let's do it. Oh, nice this, was, this was interesting. This was very interesting. Ontario passes a law allowing government to seize children from parents who oppose gender transitions. Now, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, well, I, I, think, I don't think that's I right. think if they're underage, the parents have the right to do that. Sure they do. Because children aren't fully developed. They don't really know what no, they if want. A, if a three-year-old wants to be a girl and a, or a boy or something, it's, it's bizarre. But Canada's Ontario province has passed litigation, a legislation that allows the government to seize children from families that refuse to accept their child's chosen gender identity or gender expression. Uh, the so-called Supporting Children, uh, Youth, and Family Act of 2017, or Bill 89, was approved by a vote of 63 to 23, according to the Christian Times. This is uh, the Canadian Parliament. Yeah. Uh, it requires child protection, foster, adoption, service providers, and judges to take into account and respect the child's race, ancestry, place of origin, um, color, ethnic origin, citizenship, family diversity, disability, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. <laughs> there, wasn't okay. any, there wasn't enough stuff, my God. And, uh, I would consider that a form of uh, abuse 
which is uh, what this guy, this is part of the decision. I consider that a form of abuse when a child identifies one way and the caregivers are saying, no, uh, you need to do this uh, differently. Minister of Child and Family Services, Michael Cocteau, uh, Cato, uh, who introduced the bill, was quoted as saying, if it's abuse and if it's within the definition, a child can be removed from the environment and placed into protective protection where the abuse stops. Well, if they're abusing the child. Well, yeah, you know, I can understand that. But if you get and a, that might be the reason the child is getting abused. That, that's correct. That's correct. The eligibility of the bars members of Reformed Presbyterian Church to North America was canceled and the children were taken away. The CAS worker who insisted that the bars teach the kids that the Easter Bunny is genuine uh, told them that the Easter Bunny was an important part of Canadian culture. Jesus. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm telling you. In April, a Christian couple filed a lawsuit against Hamilton Children's Aid Society for removing two foster children for their, from their home because they refused to lie to the girls by saying that the Easter Bunny is real. Huh? We have a no-lying policy, uh, Derek Bars, one of the foster parents said at the time, pointing out that <laughs> the child support uh, worker insisted that he and his wife, Frances Bears, tell the two girls in their care age three and four, that the Easter Bunny is real. Well, we explained to the agency that we are not prepared to tell the children a lie. And if the children ask, we would not lie to them, but we wouldn't bring it up ourselves. And the eligibility of the bars member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America was canceled and the children were taken away. That's freaking amazing, huh? That they would do that. No? There's got to be more to that than that. Yeah, I don't that, that you know. article, but I don't know. Pretty bizarre. Very bizarre. But, so, that's the way it is, right? Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. And that was from, where's that from? Ontario. ChristianPost.com. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant, where was it? <laughs> this, is, this is a frightening thought, too. I'm going to go to that, but... This was terrible. This was really terrible. Um, you remember the Gardasil? Yeah, remember all my, that? my children take that. Remember all that, that crazy stuff? They forced kids well, to It turns out that uh, they warned them that they came it's out a, and said, It's a scam. Lead developer of HPV vaccines Vaccine. comes clean, warns parents and young girls, it's all a giant deadly scam. The HPV vaccine controversy has got many people confused, and here's what you need to know. The human papillomavirus is a very common virus that is transmitted by a sexual contact. And symptoms aren't always apparent and sometimes can be a carrier without knowing it. The virus, like influenza, will usually go away on its own. And if the immune system is not working optimally, uh, however, the virus can linger, causing genital warts. Um, there is also uh, evidence that Extended exposure to the virus can cause cancer of the cervix, vagina, anus, rectum, mouth, throat, pelvis, penis, penis, and vulva. Um, Vaccinations have been developed to prevent infection of HPV. In recent years, campaigns to promote vaccinations have escalated. The two most popular are Gardasil and uh, uh, Cervarex. 
progressive vaccination programs of teenage girls and boys have been instituted worldwide. The uptake of these programs have been lower than expected, and the safety of these vaccinations is questioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of problems, sensitive subject that um, goes on. But um, I'm going to guide you to um, Daily Health Post, okay? Uh, check that out, Daily Health Post. It's a good, uh, it's a good, uh, good call. Um, check it out. Ah, okay. Yeah, this is this is frightening. Take this out, folks. Um, Intolerant Democrats ask I, teachers to destroy books books written by climate deniers. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Imagine these three idiots here. Girl Scout leaders across the country 
and attempting to adapt it to other groups of kids, including schools, youth-focused organizations such as 4-H. <coughs> Excuse me. With the help of other universities such as Stanford, the research was financially supported by government grants. So it's kind of bizarre to me that they would do do this. I mean, there's such a I I I mean, you remember it used to just be the the the, the, the hard ass Republicans, that, you know, on the Christian right. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wanted everything censored, and no, you know, they take everything out, and you know, you you're you're an anarchist. Well, you know, now it's the left that's doing the same thing. Yeah. Now it's ridiculous. It's it's just well. That suits the engender of the elite. They want everybody to control. Sure control. they do. Yeah, sure. They don't care. Control yeah. the right, control the left, pull a, yeah. pull a noose. Oh, yeah, all. and constantly make uh, just <coughs> Very foolish people. Sure they are. But, you know, they know what's going on. Mm hmm This was... Um, They're all little puppets. Yeah. Um... Fetishization, liberal fetishization yeah, yeah. of nonviolence in the wake of alt-right murders. It's going down. What do they mean by that? Well, the alt-right has long been preparing for war, and they are holding training courses and teaching each other how to make weapons to bring to rallies. But they're faced with, um, they're facing um, anti, you know, anti-Trump uh, anarchists, mm -hmm. you know, who are beating them up, all right? And, uh, and and terrorizing them and uh, won't let them in. You remember that Spencer guy and all that stuff for mm -hmm. the, yeah, the alt-right? In the wake of alt-right, um, white nationalist-related murders at the, in the past three weeks, liberal pundits continue to come out against any form of violence against fascist terrorist groups. And a, to uh, a popular theme to the condemnation stems from two schools of thought. Consequences and passivism. 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 A, a consequences <coughs> uh, being first that the optics of violence help the fight, but also that punching is illegal and can be damaging to those doing the punching. Legality should not play a role in stopping self-defense. Antifa and others are not. That's the that's the pro. Mm -hmm. uh, or the anti-Trump group uh, and you know violent anarchists the ones that cover their faces and stuff. And others are not trying to make it legal to punch anyone. There is a reason they wear masks and often run away after. They are more interested in doing what is right, not what is legal. And yes, they know the legal ramifications of their actions and are willing to take the risk. They are putting their own freedoms on the line for the greater good. <laughs> okay, violence is not being sought but rather implemented when it is in the only form of defense against a violent organization calling for the mass extermination of millions of people, which is what alt-right is. You know, they, you know, they face of fascism is that. When it comes to optics, we can use the punching of Richard Spencer on January 20th as an example. In Spencer's own words, he was terrified after being assaulted, and he planned to attend the Women's March the weekend after the inauguration and didn't show up out of fear for his safety. Spencer was already a public figure who was punched while being <coughs> by an international television station, but the message was sent to his followers. Um, the message is that they are not safe to stand on the street and spread their message of genocide. Not punching him would have shown him 
uh, he is safe to stand on the street espousing his abhorrent views without consequence. You know, and I, you know, I don't know. I mean, genocide may be a little uh, over the top. Over the top on this, but um, you know, the, the outright the outright message is is basically is basically hate. Yeah. And um, you know, it's 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 um, it's bad. I, I mean, I've listened to it, and I, I find it is that. And uh, uh, I think, uh, and this is what uh, George uh, Chicarello Meyer, in an interview with Abolition General, 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 rather, had this to say about the punching of Spencer. This was a professor. He said, I think what is being missed in the fact that this is a, prof, a praxis uh, that this is not simply a performance. It's not an expression of frustration. It's an actual political practice that is constructive and creative. So the effects that punching Nazis create uh, include, first, as Richard Spencer, uh, through his own absurd inability to think strategically, has admitted, it has made his life a living hell already. And he admitted that it making uh, it very difficult for them to organize uh, he admitted, in other words, everything that may that many of us have said about how Nazis need to be treated, and about this famous apocryphal quote from Hitler that says, "If someone had recognized early on and crushed our movement with, with the utmost brutality of violence, then we would never have been able to grow." Well, don't be fooled into believing that alt-right is only taking up violence because someone punched Spencer. The alt-right uh, has long been preparing for war, and they are holding training courses and teaching each other how to be weapon, make weapons and bring to rallies. They are doing so not only to protect themselves from Antifa, but also attack them uh, all under the guise of free speech rights. And they understand that people mobilizing to the uh, platform them is a threat to any attempt that they have to organize, and thus are doing everything they can to carve out space for themselves. And unfortunately, it appears that when these neo-Nazi fascists show up armed in towns like Berkeley, California, many liberals seem to believe the best way to counter them is to stay home and bring them no attention. Well, recently in Portland, Oregon, a man was shouting anti-Muslim slurs at two teens on a train. Upset by what they were witnessing, several men approached the man to stop him. This man was carrying a knife and slashed their throats. And the Southern Poverty Law Center discovered that the man empathized with Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma Obama and was pro-Hitler and Nazi ideologies and anti-Semitic. A spokesman for SPLC That's a Southern Poverty yeah, was emphasized that while standing up for others can do wonders and diffuse a situation, it is best to leave any type of confrontation to the police. Mm-hmm. That's so, true. Yeah. And this you don't know what's going on no. in that person's mind. They're crazy. No, you don't. And, you know, this article goes on along pretty long. I'd suggest that you go to it, but it's, it's a very good article. And it kind of tells you, uh, well, what's going on? You know, what, why people are attacking people and what's what's happening to them. <coughs> and, uh, you know, uh, 
scary. Yeah. But this is a horrible picture. This is what phosphorus did, uh, chemical weapons to Saudi Arabia. Oh. That we sold them, yeah. U.S. sells Saudi Arabia uh, phosphorus chemical weapons. So they, they can and drop they it on the children. And this was done in Yemen. Ugh. Horrible. Burns her whole face off. Yeah. Uh, she sent this out. Israel backs Saudi Arabia in confrontation with Qatar. Um, yeah, well, Saudi Arabia and Israel, two creations of the Western world. Yeah. Israel officials have gleefully endorsed the position of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in growing confrontation with Qatar and most uh, public acknowledgement yet of the deepening alliance between certain Gulf states and Tel Aviv over their common enemy, which is Iran. And uh, meanwhile, evidence was emerged of close cooperation between the United Emirates and the key Israeli lobby group to pressure Qatar over its support for the Palestinian resistance organization Hamas. So that's so what they're doing. Uh, Israel's officials were quick to offer their support to Saudi Arabia and a new line drawn in the Middle East sand. Uh, Israel's deputy minister for diplomacy, no longer Israel's, uh, no longer Israel against Arabs, but Israel and Arabs against Qatar financing terror. Yeah, this is a long article, but you might want to go to it. It's from the Electric, Electric, yeah, Electronic Intifada, yeah. and it was sent to us by Gil Corey Townsend. Um, we thank Gil for that. And let's see. Do, 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 do. And we only got three minutes left. So let's see. Oh yeah, here this is uh, this is crazy. Um, U.S. strikes on Syrian army intentional aimed at conf- extending the conflict. We're still we're still sending strikes in Syria. Imagine that. What's amazing? Nobody's talking about it, huh? This is like, man, this came out today. Um, Coming in on a new airstrike carried out by the U.S.-led coalition on Syria, pro-government forces on Tuesday, uh, Egyptian, that was, uh, what's today, Wednesday? Uh Today's Wednesday, that was yesterday, it was Tuesday. Um, Egyptian military analyst General uh, Muslim uh, called it an international attack aimed at stopping the advancing government forces and explained why the U.S. and the coalition are not interested in the end of the Syrian conflict. Huh. You want to read that? On Tuesday, the U.S.-led coalition delivered another attack on Syrian government forces, which we, which were advancing inside a deconflictation zone near El Tanaf. Commenting on the new attack, Egyptian military analyst General Gamal Mazam, former head of the research center of the Egyptian Military Academy, told Sputnik that the U.S. is trying to weaken the military potential of Damascus by by delivering intentional air attacks on its advancing government forces. Besides, he said the U.S. is trying to increase its military influence on the balance of power in Syria. It was clearly seen when they were arming the Kurds on the same on the very same principle as they did earlier in Iraq, the general said. He did not rule out that such a military escalation on the part of the U.S. 
could be aimed at disrupting Syrian peace talks in Astana. The U.S., he said, is trying to extend the conflict as neither the U.S. administration nor the Pentagon are interested in a stable Syria and in a political settlement of the conflict. Washington is pursuing its previous policies in the Middle East, promoting the expansion of military conflicts. The airstrikes could be delivered on terrorist groups rather than these forces that are fighting against terrorists, the expert concluded. So it's like... They, you know, they 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 want a bomb. I mean, we they are we are uh, ISIS. Yeah, we are ISIS. And Al Qaeda and all of those. Yeah, you know. Uh, Hillary Clinton formed those things. Exactly. And Obama. Yeah. So if you look back and think days were better then, they weren't. No. Oh, this was interesting. Uh, we went this time. Mueller. Uh, the, new, uh, the new special prosecutor <coughs> adds heavy hitter prosecutor to Trump investigation team. Mm. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, What's he mean by Andrew that? Weissman, who was led <coughs> by the section of the criminal division of the justice. Um, just to tell you, he's putting on a, a, a heavy hitting prosecutor, I think. Reports Rachel Maddow. Is Rachel, uh, Rachel Maddow report. In March 1992, over a period of nine days, what the New York Times called nine exhaustive days, um, a man named Sammy Gravano, who everybody called Sammy the Bull, mm-hmm. testified in federal court in Brooklyn, New York, and he testified against the most famous and arguably the most powerful mafia crime boss in the entire country. Okay. March 1992. Sammy the Bull, the underboss of the Gambino crime family, took the stand in Brooklyn and gave nine days of epic, <coughs> damning testimony against the head of the Gambino Gotti. crime family, the guy he worked for, John Gotti. Now, of course, they called John Gotti the Teflon Don uh, because he was slick in his personal appearance. He was also a great talker. He was witty, smooth. He had a real way with words. Uh, they also called him the Teflon Don because charges never stuck to him. That was before Sammy the Bull, though. When Sammy the Bull testified in March 92, he, he was, was one of the highest-ranking mafia figures to have ever turned state's evidence to testify against the mob. He testified in March of that year. The following month, April of that year, John Gotti got convicted. Teflon Don, Teflon no longer. Right? John Gotti got sentenced in April 1992 to life in prison. Ultimately, in 2002, a decade later, he died behind bars. Meanwhile, though, Sammy the Bull went into witness protection, mm. as you might imagine. Uh, in his case, that meant Arizona. <laughs> now, at the time of John Gotti's conviction, I said John Gotti was definitely the most famous and arguably the most powerful mob boss in the United States. I said he's only arguably the most powerful at the time, because, of course, if you've ever seen a mob movie, you know that there, there isn't just one crime family, right? There are rival families in the Italian. She talks too much and, and she flips out. But uh, she reported on the prosecutorial accomplishments of Andrew Weissman, who was led, left the fraud section of the criminal division of the Justice Department to join special counsel Robert Mueller um, as an investigation of the Trump-Russia affair. Well, we'll see. Yeah. So, you know. Um, I'm not a racial Maddow fan. I, you know, she's kind of 
but doesn't do much for me. But uh, anyway, we'll come know, right to the I, end I, of our show. This is what this is what they were saying, and I thought it was interesting mm. because they do they are getting another special prosecutor in with a special prosecutor, you know, to go after right. Trump. So it's like good luck. On that note, we'll see what happens. Oh, and before you forget, in Trump's White House, everything's coming in two weeks. <laughs> Oh, is that what he said? Uh, everything's coming in two weeks. I got my plans. I got my actions. I got everything. Is good. Yeah. yeah, this is what Bloomberg but It's kind of funny. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought we'd let you know that with Trump, everything's coming in two weeks. Yeah, yeah including an indictment and <coughs> impeachment. But anyway, so. Well, thanks for listening, folks. I yeah. hope you have a great end of the week, and we look forward to a nice weekend of sunny weather. We've had a lot of rain in the northeast, so we're yeah. looking for sunshine, and I hope the sun will be shining where you are. Yeah. So good night, everybody. Hope you learned something, and come on back. Till next, next time. Next week. Good night.